We're going to continue and finish the study of the Ten Commandments. Thank you so much. Uh, The Ten Commandments tonight. And so open up to Exodus 20, if you would. Exodus 20. Now, before we read, I want to share with you uh, something interesting last night. Um, We had a council meeting last night, and... um, and the chambers had a number of people in there and whittled down to just one person remaining in the chamber. It was uh, Ted over here. And, um, and it was the last item on the agenda. And one of the council members had proposed um, the National League of Cities is very concerned about the budgetary cuts of the president uh, towards social services that are going to adversely affect um, cities across the country. And so he opened up and shared uh, his, his thoughts and his concerns, uh, the importance, obviously, of increasing defense spending, uh, being as though we're engaged in so many conflicts around the world, but the reduction, and, and uh, presented his case, and Julia Brownlee's going to head it up, and uh, we're going to host it, and they wanted to get a motion to pass that. And as I listened, I, I hadn't spoken much that night, and I finally just spoke up, and I said, you know, in the last administration for the last eight years... Um, federal spending has increased 90% outpacing inflation. And we're at $19 trillion, almost $20 trillion of debt. And uh, we're in a mess, and so cuts have to be made. And the lion's share of the 90% increase in federal spending has gone to social services. So somewhere along the lines, when you're spending more than you're making, you have to make cuts. And I, I kind of left it at that. I said, I understand draconian cuts are frightening, and we have to observe that and be prepared for those type of things. And that was after the evening where the city had given away, well, we'd give, been given a grant, but we, we gave away about $780,000 to nonprofits in the community. And my question is, as we tax you as citizens, um, are you happy with the city deciding what they're going to do with your money and to be generous with your money? Is that the role of government to take your money and be altruistic with your money? Um, And then representatives who may not represent your beliefs and your thoughts, taking your money and being altruistic with your money and being generous with somebody else's money. Is that good? Is that the role of government? And so we're at a place now where the, the... Regional Electric Administration, REA, was established in the 30s after um, the Depression, and they wanted to bring electricity uh, to, the rural, to rural America. And when they had hit 100% electricity in every home in rural America, this federal administration then said, oh, well, now we're about putting telephone service in every house in middle America. And so they have 100% uh, telephones. And the, the agency still exists today. And, and as uh, Ronald Reagan said, the closest thing to eternal life on this earth is a government program. <laughs> and and, and I, I, I'm sharing this because as we get to the 10th the commandment, you'll understand this. It'll make a lot of sense to you. I've gone through this, but it's important to, to revisit it. First party, second party, third party purchase. A first party purchase is where, Tim, you're going to buy a watch for yourself with your own money. So you're going to look for two things when you purchase that watch. You're going to look for price and quality. You want the best quality at the best price. Nobody shops for something for you better than you. And and if it's your money, you are going to get the best deal possible with the most options, correct? Is that Would everyone agree with that? You worked for that, didn't you? Okay. Now here's a second party purchase. You're, 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 you're going, Daniel, you're going to buy a watch for yourself with Tim's money. He's a nice guy. So, so you're going to get every bell and whistle you can imagine, and you're going to get overnight shipping, and you're not going to scrimp in any way, shape, or form, and you're going to give him that big old credit card bill at the end of the month and say, thanks for the watch, Tim. Yes? That's a second-party purchase. Kids understand second-party purchases. So do parents. I'm sorry? iPhones. iPhones. Okay, now we're going to go with a third-party purchase. And this is a difficult. This is where you buy something for somebody else with somebody else's money. And, and I love the story that Bob McEwen shares. You're, you're a business manager. You oversee a branch. Everyone who's late during the course of a month has to put a dollar in the kitty. And people are late, and the, the amount amasses. And at the end of the month, the employee of the month gets a gift from the money in that kitty to award the employee of the month who's on time and does really well. It seems like a really good opportunity to 
to challenge folks who aren't making it on time and inspire folks who are making it on time. And so it amasses to about $199. And the employee of the month is a guy who's always on time. His life is very structured. He's a little nerdy. Um, Susan, the boss's um, uh, assistant, hates this guy. His name's Bob. She hates Bob. And she knows that today is, is the employee meeting where they're going to award him the award. And she's eating a sandwich. And she's got a very short period of time before the, the event because she doesn't get to eat during the, the employee meeting. She has to work. And as she's trying to you know, get this sandwich down, the boss comes in and says, you know, I forgot about the employee meeting. Uh, I didn't go out and buy anything. Bob's the winner. Here's the 199 bucks. Go out and get Bob something. She's like, this is my luck. I don't go. So she frustratingly puts her sandwich down. She takes the money. She hates Bob. She walks out the door and she looks for the closest shop to make it convenient for herself sees a stuffed animal store, goes in, looks for something for $199. The best she can find is $195. It's a six-foot pink stuffed bunny rabbit. She puts $195 down, takes this big six-foot pink bunny rabbit, shoves it in the, in the employee break room closet. Everyone gathers for the meeting, talks about being on time and the importance of being on time. And Bob, who is re- exemplary, has been the employee of the month. And, and, and Sue, what did, what did Bob win? And they open up the closet, pull out the six-foot pink bunny rabbit. Everyone gets a big laugh. Bob gets something he doesn't need. He puts it in his car, drives home, and in a convertible, this obnoxious thing that ultimately will make it into the trash, $195 is wasted. Bob got nothing he wanted because Sue spent money that wasn't hers to buy something for somebody she didn't like or even really care about. And by definition, every purchase the government makes is a third-party purchase. They're purchasing money that's not theirs, that they didn't earn, and they're buying it for someone they don't know or care about for the most part. They want convenience, and that's why you get graft and corruption and waste. And the smaller the government, the better off we all are. So if we're going to be altruistic with money, it's fascinating that we're waiting for a grant from the federal government at the city level. And we decry that they're cutting back social services to trim a $19 trillion deficit, almost $20 trillion deficit. But let's think about this. If you take $500,000 from our community and you move it up to the federal level and it travels all the way from Thousand Oaks, California to Washington, D.C., and every hand that touches it is getting a pension and they're getting an income, they're getting a salary, they're getting benefits, they've got cell phones, they've got all those things, and they've got to pay for that, so they take a little piece of that for the handling piece, Right? And then they break it into other organizations that they've established, and those folks take their piece, and they break it into another organization, take those pieces, and then they bring it down to the state level, and they break it down to this, and they bring it to this, and how much do we get of the 500000 we sent up that comes back down? Less than a tenth. So they take our money, and they bring it down. So it goes up in a storm and comes down in a trickle. Yes? The higher up it goes, the less it comes down. Now, as I pointed out, I said, I'm a minister. I said this last night. I said, I'm a minister. We're in the business of, of, of taking care of social needs. And we do it off the tithe of our, of our congregants. And, and the less money they have, the less they tithe. And what's interesting is you have a direct connection with where it goes. You have a direct say in where it goes. And every penny you put in goes out. And the less it goes up, the less people who touch it. Now, we have overhead costs and things of that sort, but for the most part, we are a giving church and touch lives. So the question is, whose money is it? The government can take it. There's only two people who can take anything from you. One is a thief and the other is a government. Some people think they're the same thing, right? And so we come to this 10th commandment, which is fascinating because of all the 10 commandments, all the 10 commandments are actions, excuse me, the first nine commandments, excuse me, the first nine commandments are all actions. Don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, right? Don't commit adultery, don't don't bear false witness, don't murder. Those are all actions. But the 10th commandment, unlike the first nine, is a thought, a thought. So let's go through the 10 commandments from the beginning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Everyone do this. No other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourselves carved image of any likeness. So let's do the sign of the devil. Anything is in heaven above or the earth beneath 
You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the equity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Here we go. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Put that over your mouth. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, sleeping, this is your pillow, four. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. Seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is with your gates or within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Here we go, fifth commandment, honor your father, and your mother, that's a neat sign language deal. Honor your father and, father and your mother, for to go long with you, uh, you'll live long on the earth the Lord is giving you. Here we go, you shall not commit, here's six, five, six, murder. You shall not commit murder, right? You shall not commit murder, that's a sixth commandment. You shall not commit husband and wife adultery, right? You shall not steal, that's the eighth commandment. You don't steal. And then we had the other one, you shall not bear false witness, how did we do that? I can't remember. Well, it's nine. So let's just leave it at that one. You should not bear false witness. No perjury. No perjury. Right? Here we go. No perjury. There we go. That's what it was. And then finally, here comes the thought. You shall not covet. 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 You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Now, it's good for a man to want a wife, just not his neighbor's wife. Can I get an Amen. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his male servant. Now, let's, let me walk through this. Your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant. The male servant would be, uh, the, the, it, it, the equivalent today would be a dishwasher, a washing machine. The, the servants did that labor. You don't covet somebody's washing machine. You don't covet their dishwasher. You don't covet whatever that is, okay? Their oven, their stove, their barbecue. Nor his female servant, same thing nor his ox, that would be his tractor or his pickup truck, or his donkey, uh, that would be his Hyundai. Nor, listen, nor anything, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Nor anything that is your neighbor's. So the word covet is lachmod in the Hebrew, lachmod. It doesn't mean that, it, it, the idea is it's, it's, it's more than just wanting something that someone has. It's, it, it's good to be motivated. To, wow, that's a beautiful house. I'd like to have a house like that. That's a good thing. It can be destructive and constructive. De- destructive is if we take it to the lock mode level, which I'll explain momentarily. But it can be constructive that you look at someone's life and you see how hard they've worked and you say, I want that, so I've got to do what they're doing to achieve and obtain that. So that is that that idea is it, it can be constructive. So lachmod doesn't mean that that you just simply want something. You, you can want something. That is a great house. I want a house like that. That is a great car. Someday I want to drive a car like that. Yes. The Hebrew word for covet is deeper than that. The Hebrew word is to want to the point of seeking to take away and own something that belongs to another person. Income inequality. Does the government produce wealth? Does the government produce anything? The only thing the government can do is redistribute wealth. How do we do that? How does the government redistribute wealth? Taxes, it goes up and a little comes down. 90% increase in federal spending of which two-thirds was to social services. Everybody gets a phone, everybody gets a, everybody gets a, everybody gets a. That's your money. And as it goes up, everyone who touches it has an opinion of where it should go. And you fight for the ideology of a nation, and it doesn't necessarily represent the locality of where you live or the people you associate with, and they're taking your income that you've worked hard for. They didn't work for it. The check just comes in because every, every April you're required to send in a check. They didn't go to work all day. They didn't do those things. You did, and you send that portion of your money to them to decide what they're going to do and be altruistic with your money. And by the way, compassion has to cost you something, and the government doesn't have compassion. There's no idea of a compassionate government. Government is a reflection of its people. And so this is why, and it's interesting, of all the commandments, the first nine commandments are actions, 
And the 10th commandment is a thought, a thought. Of the 613 commandments in the first five books of the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the 613 commandments, this is the only commandment that is a thought. Every, every other commandment, is a, it, it's, it, 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 it's the only one that prohibits this thought. Every other commandment prohibits an action. And why would God conclude these commandments for life with a prohibition prohibiting a thought. Why would God conclude the Ten Commandments with a prohibition against a thought? Anyone have a thought on that? Did you see that? I know it's Wednesday and you're a little tired. Yeah, you're, you want something so much there's going to be an action resulting from it. Was someone else going to... Same thing? So you bear witness to that? Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to um, James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Ready? Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously and he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the idea is, where do wars and fights come from? You want something and you can't get it. You want something and you can't get it. Let's think about this. What is rightfully yours? Has anyone ever gone through uh, a death of a relative where the estate was divided? One, two, three, I did. Any arguments in your family? Yes? Was it ugly? ugly still is ugly and some of you just wait your parents will die <sighs> just kidding um, the idea is this um, that that was my dad's favorite bowling ball and we had a conversation and he wanted to give that to me and and when he was in his senility and struggling my sister came in and convinced him to give it to her and he signed it over and and that's mine that's rightfully mine well, whose bowling ball is it? Nobody, nobody deserves it. You don't, you don't deserve anything. You're not entitled to anything. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Verse 1, do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? By the way, that's Genesis 126. The law is still in place, folks. We're to operate in the context of the law. It'd be nice if churches started to apply this to the civic life and Christians started demanding this on the earth. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear the fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. And here's what he says. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter of the law. See, the law doesn't save and it doesn't bring life, but it can bring structure. We now know the spirit of the law and the purpose for it. And here's what he says, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not known sin except through the law. 
For I would, have no, I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, was, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. His point is this. If I wanted something, I took it. He who dies with the most toys wins. Steal, cheat, lie. Do whatever you got to do to get what you want. Hey, go for it all. If this is all there is, and there's no accountability to a God and a supreme lawgiver, then you know what? chaos and authority. And I'm going to, I'm going to rule over you and take what you have. and You're going to serve me. That's the way it works. I'm going to make the best of my life. Since there are no commandments and there's no laws, I'm going to make my own and make sure that my life on this earth before I die is everybody serving me. And I have to do the least amount of work so that I'm happy. But then the law by the spirit is revealed. And this is what happens. Wait a minute. You're telling me that covetousness is wrong? So the law is a schoolmaster that drives us to Christ and we go, I can't want what somebody else has? No, that's a violation of what God declares. Oh Lord, I'm a sinner. Yeah, you are. You mean I can't take another man's wife? No, no. Oh Lord, I'm a sinner. It's until the law comes in that we're convicted. And then the Apostle Paul would go on later and say, oh, wretched man that I am, who delivered me from this body of death? And then Jesus comes along, forgives us, and now the law takes on a whole new meaning. This brings life. And I want to obey it because I see the preservation that the law brings to society. What kind of a society would we have if everyone stole from everybody? Well, if you have any question, just go into Central America. Spend some time in Guatemala. See if you can keep your door unlocked at night. I grew up, our doors were never locked. That was the culture in which we lived. People were governed by God, and thus society was affected by that. And the more that we covet and take from one another, the more we're frightened from each other. And then we have class warfare, which gets even more crazy. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And look with me, if you would, at verse... Five. The author, supposedly the Apostle Paul, says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with what you have. The Bible says godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I was um, telling someone the other day, I, I've, I've had the distinct privilege in my 52 years on this, this earth to experience what the wealthy experience. Whatever they fly in, I've flown in. Whatever they drive, I've driven. Whatever they eat, I've eaten. Wherever they've lived, I've lived. I've, I've been there, I've done that, I, I've experienced all of that. And, and that's, that's the... 1% of the 1%. I've, I've raced cars at 170 miles an hour. I've flown in Global Express jets. I've, I've been on island, uh, an island that's a 50,000 square foot house with tennis courts and, and wave runners and boats and reefs around it and a drawbridge. And I've, I, I've stayed there for a week. I've, I, I had a personal chef that served the food and I ate it. And I have news for you. I don't want any of it. None of it moves me. I think it's great. I don't despise it. I don't covet it. I like what I have. I'm content. And certainly being in that home, I'm not longing for, for the, the wealth of the rich man to the point where I want to take it from him. I, I'm, I'm content being there, just enjoying their company. But how many times have you been around somebody who's wealthy and you think, their wealth could really solve my problems? Hello? Hello? Nobody? This is, I, this, thou shall not lie. We, we covered that one, didn't we? <laughs> Folks, I'm looking for participation tonight. 
Has anyone been with a wealthy person and you thought their wealth could solve your problems? Yes or no? They can only deal with the symptoms of your problem. Their money can only deal with a symptom. Money is an accelerant. It's like gasoline on a fire. You put money towards any problem and it's an accelerant, it reveals what that person is. You have a drug issue, you give them money, they are a bigger drug user. They have a gambling struggle and they're in debt and you give them more money, they go, they lose even more money. It's an accelerant. That's all money is. It's an inanimate object. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil because it doesn't solve the problem. In many cases, it exasperates it. And one of the greatest problems of the wealthy is it's hard to give away money. Now, you look at this and you say, well, there's income inequality. And in income inequality in America is, the responsibility, is, is correlated with, our, with poverty. Has anyone ever been taught that? Any millennials? Income inequality is a correlation of the poverty. It, it, it leads to poverty. Has anyone heard that? Of course we have. Income inequality leads to poverty. Okay. Let's take a look at the nations with the greatest income inequality. United States and Western Europe. We have the lowest poverty. Let's look at nations that have unbelievable income equality, like the Sudan and North Korea. How are they doing? I'm sorry, what? Not too good. Now, yes, does that mean there's greed? Sure, there's greed. But is, is giving everyone the same the answer? Because to give someone the same, like we said before, John, you have an A in the class because you go to class every day. You do your homework. You work really hard. You, you, you study. You, you, you put the hours in. You're getting an A in this calculus class. Grant hadn't done squat, didn't show up at class, didn't do diddly. <laughs> And, and he's getting a big, fat friend, F, friendship. And, and, and I'm, I'm a teacher of socialism, and I don't like the inequality of an A and an F. So I'm going to bring you to a C, and I'm going to bring him up to a C. Oh, isn't that good? So what's going to happen now that, that John, who worked really hard, got a C, and Grant, who didn't work hard, got an F, but now Grant gets a C, and, and John gets to see what's going to happen now to the culture. Is, 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 is John going to work harder? No. And, and here's the thing. We have learned in our culture not to say thank you. And here's why. I'm entitled to it. Grant's got a C. Well, I want a B. Well, you, you don't deserve I didn't deserve a C. You gave me a C. Why can't I have a B? Give me, give me, give me. I'm entitled. So we have an entire generation of millennials that don't say thank you. They just say, give me. I want. Well, they're saying, give me something that they haven't earned. And that is a violation of the 10th commandment. It applies to government. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. And verse 13, Jesus speaking the parable of the rich fool. Then one from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We covered that earlier, didn't we? My brother is not giving me what's mine. Well, wait a minute, it belongs to your parents. Yeah, but I get half the estate. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Look at, look at me if you would for a second. So Jesus then says, You know what? You're right. We need to disperse this evenly. Let's see if that's what Jesus says. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. What is covetousness according to Lachmod? Anyone listening tonight that hears that want to answer what Lachmod in the Hebrew means? The word covet doesn't mean it's more than want. What is it? Raise your hand. Oh, go ahead. 
from its owner. Okay, so Jesus says, he gives to this man who's saying, my brother needs to share this inheritance with me. He says, who made me a judge or arbitrator? And he said to them, take heed, beware of covetousness. Covetousness. For one's life does not consist in what? Am I in the wrong passage? For one's life does not consist in what? In the abundance of the things he what? Is your identity in what you own? I went through a big issue with my sister yesterday. We were on the phone. And, and she got married. And she said she was upset that nobody wished her well wishes. And I had a long conversation with her. I said, you set us up. That's not legit. And we had a really cool conversation. We came to an understanding. But I told her, I said, why do you need me to validate you? When, when I broke away from the family and I left A.C. Nielsen to go into the ministry and mom and dad said they weren't going to talk to me and all of you joined with mom and dad and I was left out there all by myself... I didn't need any of you to validate me because I was validated from the Lord and I knew what I was doing was right. I missed you guys, but I didn't need your validation. I didn't need you to tell me what I was doing was right. I'm accountable to the Lord. Why do you need my validation to make your life significant? You, you say unconditional love. It, it, does it mean that I have to buy into your ideology? Does that mean you don't love me unconditionally because you don't buy into my ideology? Why can't we agree that we disagree? I, I hold to a theonomy. You hold to a heteronomy. I believe that God rules and, and this is the way marriage is supposed to be and you hold to a heteronomy and I disagree with you. Do you want to silence me? Do you want to close my florist shop? Do you want to close my bakery? Do you want fascism to rule? Do you want to take what's mine because I don't hold to whatever it is you feel I need to hold to? And we had that conversation and we had a very deep and profound conversation. And I said, Gretch, I knew in the Bible, I love this, we rise and fall before one master, that's the Lord. I knew what I, when I did what I did that this was my calling. And it was a season where God took me away from the family. And I said, and you were the first to call me because you were excited about what I was doing. And here you are, you're getting ready to venture in. You want to pull away from a family that holds to theonomy to embrace heteronomy, another of the same kind, a life apart from the, the authority of God's law. You want to go into this world and you're jettisoning us because we hold to this. Now, what I would say to you is, you are, you are a professed believer in Jesus Christ and you're moving in this direction. So I would say to you, you rise and fall before one master. If the Lord's telling you to do this, do it. Now, I know that, that, that God's not doing it. I know that she's, and, and she has a torn artery. She said, this is like a physical manifestation of an emotional struggle. My heart is torn. I go, right, it is. But it's not torn. I, I'm, I'm not the one you're fighting. I'm not the one who's, I'm not leaving you, you're leaving us. And, and it's not even me that's the issue, it's the Lord. This is, this is the battle. So you, you have to decide that. And she goes, I'm going to miss you. I said, I'm going to miss you too. And I jokingly said, can I call you on your birthday? She says, I still want to talk to you. I just, I just have to figure all this out. I said, I get it. I had shared with her about you, Natasha, when, when Natasha said, I got to go down to Oxnard. And I remember that. She said, Dad, I just can't live under these rules, this theonomy. I said, I understand that. You're experiential like your dad. I keep running my head into that brick wall. One of these days, it's going to give. And my head hurts so much, but it's going. And I told her when she was leaving, I, and she had her car packed, and I said, you know, you've heard this before, but I said, sweetie, you're going down to Oxnard. People spend their life trying to get out of Oxnard. And I, and I said, and forgive me if you live in Oxnard, but that's... But, but I said to her, I, I said, you only owe me one thing. Because the, the, the Lord unified our family um, when she was 12. She had, she had been apart from us for 12 years, and he finally brought her home. That's the way I look at it. And I said, the only thing you owe me as your dad is one thing. If you find anything better than Jesus out there, you've got to come tell me. But she, she just had to do this. I, I've just got to get this out. I've got to prove that, uh, that there's something other than under the rules over here. And off she goes. 
And that life, by her own admission, as she shared in front of the congregation, was a living hell. And the heteronomy didn't prove itself helpful because we're practicing a theonomy, God's law in our home, that there's three hots, three hot meals and a flop, three hots and a flop is what my mom used to say, a bed to lie in, three hots and a flop that's provided for you. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord theonomy and the culture in which we reside will be theonomy. And, and we're going to try to push forward theonomy in the culture because it brings life. The law, the commandments bring life and allows us to be convicted and accountable to God, which is this idea of autonomy. What you're filled with is what you're ruled by. And so you're over here and, and, and it's, it's awful. And she called and she said, I want to come home. I said, okay. And when she came home, as we talked, she realized I need a foundation of theonomy. And so she spent an entire year in discipleship at Teen Challenge, establishing this understanding of a life governed by God's commandments in his life, his law. Bringing her life by the spirit of the Lord into submission to the will of the Lord. And I'll tell you what, it's changed her and it's changed us. And it's touched many lives. And instead of being a, a ministry, she's a minister. And so this is the picture that you see in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But look at verse 16. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. He's a hardworking guy, isn't he? Hello? It's his ground. He's working it. It's yielding plentifully. He's obviously studied. He's done agricultural insights. He's done whatever he's done is working. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? He's making more money than the Pope has appointments. And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, this guy, this guy is schizophrenic. Because in the passage, look what he says here. I shall do. I have no room. I will do this. I will pull down. I will store my crops and my goods. Why does God give abundance to a man? To build bigger barns? Anybody have a biblical understanding of why God blesses a man and a woman? I'm sorry? Share your wealth? bless others. Now, is a rich man supposed to give away 90% of his income and only live on 10%? The poor of us in here go, yeah, yeah. What about the rich man reinvesting his wealth to build larger businesses to employ more people? Hello? Isn't that an extension of wealth to bless a community? Isn't it nice to have low unemployment and a place to go to work every day? But here's the problem of a rich man. He keeps investing, the business gets bigger, and even if he's only getting a 10% return and he's got all these businesses, it just keeps coming in. And after a while, you don't know what to do with it. It becomes a little overwhelming. Not for many, but I mean, how many watches do you need? Right? And the idea is, God, how do I use this for your glory? And, and do you want to leave it to your children? Here's an interesting one. If your children don't work with it and you give it to them, just look at the tabloids. That is a a good recipe for misery. There are some wealthy that don't leave anything to their kids except for faith. But watch this. And and I'm not here to judge that. This, This is a process. But watch this. Verse 18, so he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So is that the purpose of wealth? I got mine. I don't care about the future, but the Bible says a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. What is one of the greatest things to do with wealth if you're a rich person is to invest, and this is interesting by some of the most brilliant wealthy people, is they invest in education for future generations. They get their name on a building long after they're gone, but what they're doing, Stanford University, endowments to, it's a brilliant thing because you're investing in a future generation. Yes? You build a library, you build a park. You do something for future generations, but if you die with it, and he says, I got everything I want, and I don't care about the future, Jesus points out in verse 20, but God said to him, fool, 
That's a pretty heavy statement to hear God Almighty call you a fool. That's an indictment. Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So it is, so is he who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. You know, the only way that we could probably build a building with this church, if we wanted to build a building, is I would have to appeal to your wealth and, and, and challenge you altruistically and do a thermometer and say, this is the down payment and da-da-da-da. And people said, Pastor, if you don't teach on tithing or you don't pass an offering bag, your church is going to implode. People won't tithe. Well, I believe the more you... St- I remember one of the things that the Lord encouraged me on, the very first Sunday I preached, I forgot to send the offering. And the elders came up to... Well, we didn't do the offering, and they would always pray over the offering. And I'm, I said, I'm sorry. And then that day we counted it, and there was, there was no loose change in the offering. It was just checks. People put it in the box. I thought to myself, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, not out of guilt or compulsion. I was thinking as the bag's going by, people are, you know. And I thought, the scripture says you purpose beforehand and you bring that to the, to the, to the storehouse. So I, I figure, okay, let's just leave it at that. Teach the scriptures. People will be moved by this concept that, that this is the law. It's a tithe. Grace is greater than law. If you say we're under grace, well, that's fine. You can go bigger than the tithe, but the tithe is the commandment. And you, and you look at that, and, and I, as I thought to it, I remember one time this lady came up to me, and she says, where do I take my tithe? It was probably about three months into me being in the pastor. She says, where do I take my tithe? And I said, um, uh, um, it's in the box in the back. And I said, I, I, I haven't had the privilege to meet you. I, I'm, I'm Pastor Rob. She goes, I know who you are. I said, uh, you've been coming to the church for a long time? You've, you've been a long-time member? No. Oh, well, where did you attend church before that, that you understood tithing? She says, this is the first church I've ever been to. I've been going for three weeks. I said, well, how did you understand tithing? When you were going through Genesis, and you talked about the tithe that Abraham gave, and it's a tenth, and I figured, maybe, is that right? Am I wrong? I go, no, you aren't wrong. Bless your heart. She heard the word. She obeyed the word. Now, if you don't tithe, what is that? It's stealing, but it can also be coveting. You want something God hasn't given you. So you take his in order to get yours. That kind of hurts, doesn't it? This isn't guilt or compulsion. I'm not telling you this because we want to increase the tithe. As a matter of fact, last Sunday was, I think, the largest tithe we've received in this church since I've been here. We'd had four Sundays that were dismal. It was awful. And I remember turning to Pastor Tony, and there's a lady in the church who has cancer. She's dying. She had a tax bill, and she was burdened over it. And a member of the congregation came, and I said, write her the check for that. Do we have enough? Because we, we go week to week. We don't. And Tony goes, okay, that's, that's, that's redlining. I said, that's all right. Okay. And then there's another person who's, who's blind and struggling, uh, struggling with some partial blindness. And, and I said, they're on my heart. Would you, do we have any? He goes, you know what? This will do it. We'll be, we'll, we'll be zero. And, and Tony wrote the check. And, and then we walk in after the tithe count and it was crazy. It was like sacrificial and the Lord just bless us. And I'm like, hey, hey, that's pretty cool. You know, it's not my money, it's his. The spirit of the Lord moved upon me to do what I was called to do. And the Lord blessed. And, and, and the point is this, watch what Jesus says. He, verse 21, so he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God, your soul's gonna be required of you. You're gonna stand before the Lord and give an accounting of your life. And you know, it was, it was Rockefeller, I think, who, who, who declared to all of his servants, do not speak of death in my household. Well, guess what? He died. There's a very wealthy man in Ventura County who I've been told by a very reliable source, uh, his, his diet is unbelievably healthy. He, he, everything is organic, grows his own food, does everything. And he's got a wing in a hospital in America that he can fly there at a moment's notice to be cared for. And he, he believes with all of his heart that he's going to live past 130 years of age. And it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. The question is, you'll stand before God to give an accounting of your life and he'll say, what did you do with what I entrusted to you? 
And for each of us, that's what we ask the Lord. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And here's where we struggle when we're wealthy. And the wealthy actually have this opportunity because there's always going to be something else to buy. And it's never going to be enough. But to have that contentment, I love being with my family. People say, hey, you want to go on a trip? You want to travel? I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to go home. I just want to sit in my chair and I want to spend time with my family. I don't want to go out anymore. There's just something special about that. You can, it, money can buy a house, but not a home. It can, buy, it can buy sex, but not love. It can buy a bed, but not sleep. And, and this coveting is this idea that somehow if I can just get that, I'll be happy. It's, it never works. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And covetousness leads to all a violation of the other nine commandments. Um, we have a little bit of time left. Have you ever heard that joke about the guy who owned the Rolls Royce? He had a brand new Rolls Royce. He had a custom made. He had the telephone put in it and the TV put in it. And he, he had a wet bar put in it. And he, he had, you know, Italian leather. And he just had it decked out. And it's, he's got the windows and the whole bit. And it's just, and it's chauffeur driven. And he pulls up next to this little sports car and and, and the, the, the sports car had smoke-tinted windows, and the guy couldn't see, and he sees the, the Rolls-Royce guy sees a window roll down, and the guy's waving at him, and he thinks he's going to compliment him on his car, and so he rolls his window down, he goes, uh, he goes, what's up? He goes, you like my car? And he goes, yeah, it's all right. He goes, what do you mean it's all right? He goes, I like my car better. He goes, does your car have a TV? He goes, yeah, I got a TV in my car. He goes, you got a car in that little, you got a TV in that little, he goes, yeah, I got a TV. He goes, you have cell phone service and the, the, the telephone in there? Yeah. You have a desk? I got a desk. Is it Italian? It's Italian leather. He says, I, I got everything in here. I got everything you have in yours. He goes, you do? He goes, yeah. I mean, I, 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 got, a, I got a bed in my car just like you do. He goes, you got a bed? Rolls-Royce says, says, you have a bed in your little sports car? He goes, yeah, I got a, it's a twin bed. It's, it's awesome. He goes, what? And the guy's window rolls up and he drives off. And the Rolls Royce goes, I want a bed in the car. So he takes it back in. He gets the whole thing decked out, gets a bed put in there, satin sheets, the whole bit. He's driving around looking for this guy, trying to find him. Finally sees his sports car parked. He walks up and he's, he waits for him and he's looking for the guy to come to his car. And the guy didn't come. So he figures tinted windows, maybe he's asleep in the car. And he goes and knocks on it, knocks on it, knocks on it. Nothing. He's waiting, he's waiting. All of a sudden, after a period of time, the window rolls down and the guy's like, what do you want? He goes, you remember me? He goes, not really. He goes, I'm the Rolls Royce guy. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy doesn't have a bed. He goes, well, I got a bed now, twin, twin bed, satin sheets. And I just want to come and tell you I got a bed now. And he goes, you got me out of the shower to tell me you have a bed? <laughs> so, stupid joke, sorry. How do we get out of a deficit in our country? Higher taxes? More spending? Invest in the economy with other people's money and raise the tax? Is that how we get out of a de deficit? Hello? No? Exercise restraint. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's a foreign concept if ever I've heard it. We want in our country a greater disbursement of benefits, but we want concentrated sacrifice. You work harder and give me more. And we're the generation that receives, but we don't give. And it's, how much does an In-N-Out hamburger cost, a single In-N-Out? Dollar thirty-nine. Where's you shopping? Just a single. Two thirty-five. All right, two dollars and thirty-five cents for an In-N-Out burger, right? And it and it's delicious. It's my favorite. I love In-N-Out. It's a good product, isn't it? Okay. How much would that hamburger cost if you were to make it from scratch on your own? Now, when I say scratch, you got to get the cow. You got to buy the cow, milk the cow, make the cheese. You got to grow the vegetables. You got to slaughter the cow. Let, 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 actually, let's go to Carl's Jr. because we want bacon on that thing. So you got to have the pig. And don't forget the bun. You've got to grow the wheat, mill the wheat. Yes? culture, the yeast. You working with me here? 
Somebody calculated it. They actually calculated what it cost to, to make a BLT from scratch. It was $1,600. I like two thirty-five. And why do people buy an In-N-Out burger? Because they've taken something that would take us an enormous amount of time and effort, and they have manufactured it so that I buy that. And because I want that and I buy that and I use, what is money? Money is a representation of our contribution to society. I take my contribution and the wealth I've received and I buy that because it's cheaper for me to buy that than to go out and make my own. And of course, Chuck's making it. And so he gets a 30% profit on every burger he sells and he makes a lot of money. And he's making my life easier. That's how wealth is created. That's capitalism. Capitalism is... We do those things to create wealth. Wealth is created when two people benefit. I'm benefited, he's benefited. I don't have to go out and buy all that stuff. He's put it together. Now, the way he puts it together is he, he works with the guy who's doing the milk cows, and he works with the, the man doing the meat cows, and he's working with the, the farmer who's doing the, the lettuce, and he brings it all together, and he does a central distribution, and he trains his workers, and he does all that, and the greater... The, the greater the risk, the greater the reward. And he puts that together and he works his tail off and he's, he, he now makes it so that everybody gets one. But this idea is pay your fair share. Pay your fair share. What's fair share? Well, it's not fair. The, the rich people have and the poor people don't. I'm sorry, does that mean that, that the guy who invented Dell computers ripped off all the poor people? He went out and made a computer that everyone purchased. Does that mean that the people who invented the iPhone that you're using and you're paying good money for ripped you off? No, you bought that. Does that mean that the people who make In-N-Out burgers ripped you off? No, they made something simple so that you could purchase it instead of having to do your own. They created simplicity in your environment and they've profited from it and it creates innovation. But if you take away that innovation and you give him a C and you give him a C, you're not going to get a burger. Try going to a third world country and finding something like quality, like an In-N-Out burger. And by the way, in America, nine out of every 10 Americans live above the global middle-class standard. And we have the highest income inequality. So you've been sold a bill of goods and the idea of socialism is a violation of the 10th commandment. Taking what is not yours and feeling entitled to it. I want to show you a video. Are we ready for it? Take a look at it if you would. Got a couple minutes left. Once upon a time, there were three brothers, triplets, named Tom, Dick, and Harry Class. They were raised in the same home with the same parents, had the same IQ, same skills, and same opportunities. Each was married and had two children. They were all carpenters making $25 per hour. While they were very similar in all these respects, they had different priorities. For example, Tom chose to work 20 hours per week, while his brother Dick worked 40 hours, and Harry, 60. It should also be noted that Harry's wife worked full-time as an office manager for a salary of $50,000. Dick's wife sold real estate part-time 10 hours a week and made $25,000 per year. Tom's wife did not work. Tom and Dick spent all of their family income. Since they paid into Social Security, they figured they didn't need to save for retirement. Harry and his wife, on the other hand, had, over many years, put away money each month and invested it in stocks and bonds. Here's how it worked out. Tom made $25,000 a year. Dick and his wife made $75,000. And Harry and his wife, $150,000. When a new housing development opened up in their community, the brothers decided to buy equally priced homes on the same private street. One day, the brothers decided to pool their funds for the purpose of improving their street. Concerned about crime and safety, and wanting a more attractive setting for their homes, the three families decided to install a security gate at the street's entrance, repave the street's surface, and enhance the lighting and landscaping. The work was done for a total cost of $30,000. Harry assumed they would divide the bill three ways, each brother paying $10,000. But Tom and Dick objected. Why should we pay the same as you? They said, you make much more money than we do. Harry was puzzled. What does that have to do with anything, he asked. My family makes more money because my wife and I work long hours and because 
We have saved some of the money we've earned to make additional money from investments. Why should we be penalized for that? Harry, you can work and save all you like, Tom countered. But my wife and I want to enjoy ourselves now, not 25 years from now. Fine, Tom. Do what you want. It's a free country. But why should I have to pay for that? I can't believe you're being so unbrotherly, Tom argued. You have a lot of money and I don't. I thought you'd be more generous. At this point, Dick, the peacemaker in the family, entered the conversation. I've got an idea, Dick said. Our combined income is $250,000, and $30,000 is 12% of that amount. Why don't we each pay that percentage of our income? Under that formula, Tom would pay $3,000, I would pay $9,000, and Harry would pay $18,000. I have a much better idea, said Tom, and one that's fairer than what you're proposing. Dick and Harry turned to Tom. Harry should pay $23,450. Dick, you should pay $6,550. And I will pay nothing. To Dick, this sounded completely arbitrary and not really fair, but it did have one big plus. His share would be $2,450 less under Tom's formula than under his own. So he decided to be silent. Harry, however, was stunned. You want me to pay almost 80% of the bill despite the fact that each of us is receiving the exact same benefits? Where did you get such a crazy idea? From no less an authority than the U.S. government, Tom responded as he pulled out a gray booklet. It's all right here in the IRS tax tables. This is the progressive income tax system all U.S. taxpayers live under, and I don't see why we should be any different. In fact, I believe all future improvements should be paid in this way. Works for me, said Dick. So, by a vote of two to one, the cost of the street improvements was divided as Tom had proposed, even though they benefited equally, and even though the reason Harry had more money was that he and his wife had worked many more hours than his brothers and their wives, and had saved some of what they had earned, instead of spending it all. Tom and Dick lived happily ever after with their new arrangement. Harry grumbled a lot, but whenever he complained, his brothers called him greedy, and selfish. The end. You know, I remember uh, going into uh, Russia at the just after the the, the wall came down, and uh, they were so intrigued by capitalism, and it, it seemed as though all these socialist nations and anyone who had lived under communism could not wait to come to the West and, and grasp this great blessing of capitalism. And, and it was really kind of interesting because at that stage in my life, it, it was a, a cacophony of voices, Reagan, had, you know, president, and all that had occurred. And as I, I heard this cacophony of voices, especially from the East, it was this idea that there was a, a unanimous agreement that capitalism was, was obviously... W- effective and and it was it was unanimous that socialism was failed it was it was a broken system and so the conclusion of all the western capitalist nations by by this understanding their conclusion what they um deduced i guess was that we need to pursue socialism I mean, you, you look at Winston Churchill when he turned the nation around, and then the very first thing England wanted to do was go towards socialism. We, we just want people to do something for us. We're tired. We don't want to work. And it doesn't work. It's, it's a system that is a violation of theonomy. It's a violation of God's commandment. You don't take from somebody which is theirs. And you don't, you, you're not entitled to it. That's stealing. I'll leave you with this last thought, and then we'll take questions. Brookings Institute is not a conservative institute by any way, shape, or form. But they came to this conclusion um, through extensive study that if somebody were to apply these three things in life, just these three things, 73% of the folks that apply these three things will end up middle class or higher in America. First one, get a high school diploma. Second, don't have a child out of wedlock. Third, get a job. Nine out of ten Americans are better off and, and, and having a higher standard of living 
than the global middle class standard. And we have the highest income inequality. But we have what is called capitalism. You work, you're blessed. You don't work, you're not blessed. You take from somebody that what isn't yours, you destroy a culture. You apply socialism or communism, you'll destroy a culture. Look what happened in Venezuela. It was the fourth greatest nation in the Western Hemisphere. And today, their people are starving. You say, well, America is great because of our natural resources. and our, Okay, take North and South Korea. Same climate, same people, same language, same everything. One gets capitalism, one gets communism. One violates the 10th commandment, the other embraces the obedience to it. One has the 11th largest GDP on the face of the earth, and North Korea's people are eating grass. They have income inequality. They have income equality. Everybody's poor. And they're starving. This is the commandment of God. That's how government works with the scriptures, and scriptures work with the government. You don't divorce the two. This is theonomy.